0: Dear congregation, we well know the record of Scripture that at the beginning of time, everything was perfect. Everything was unspoiled in the Garden of Eden, in paradise. That's why we we call it paradise. Everything in in its external form was perfect, Mankind was upright, Adam would have walked and talked with the Lord, they would have had peace, Adam and his wife Eve had peace with God, peace with one another, comfort in their hearts. But we know that's just the first little bit of the Bible that covers that record of paradise. We know that the story continues. And the story of mankind's history isn't a pretty one. It's a a sad one. A broken one. God in His inscrutable wisdom that far surpasses our wisdom He left open the possibility for sin where peace and comfort would evaporate quicker than than steam from a kettle. And when we read Genesis chapter 3, we know that's exactly what happened. God told Adam in clear, understandable language, the day that you eat of the forbidden tree, you will surely die God's Word will always be fulfilled, the words of comfort, the words of justice, because they're always words of truth. Adam, as our representative head, of course, he took the forbidden fruit and plunged him and his wife, and thus we know from the New Testament as well, all of mankind into original sin. And the consequences of that began immediately, didn't they? Shame, it unfolded immediately. Blame, one another, it unfolded. Right after that, the woman that thou gavest to be with me, she gave me to eat, and I ate of it. And then there was murder in the first family, Cain slew Abel. There was tears, and on and on the sad story goes. Sorrow and broken shattered a broken shattered world was a result. And so that already by Genesis six and verse six we read this sobering commentary. And in a certain way, are some of the saddest words in the Bible. And the Lord repented or was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. God surveying all the beauty that He had made and had announced that it was good, that it was good, that it was good every day, and then it was very good. And then the Lord was sorry that He had made man and had grieved Him in His heart. In the Puritan era in the 1600s, there was a poet by the name of John Milton who wrote a, a lengthy poem, and maybe some of you uh, young people have, have read uh, a poem that subsequently has become a classic entitled Paradise Lost, written some ten some ten chapters of a rather lengthy poem written in, in blank verse, in non-rhyming verse, Paradise Lost. And really, that covers the, the truth of, of what happened. Paradise, in the full sense, was lost. Since that fateful day, everything, as we say often in, in colloquial language, has gone south. It all went bad. But mankind still being made in the image of God has been therefore on a quest for comfort, on a quest for peace ever since, seeking to regain that paradise lost. And mankind looks everywhere, doesn't he, for paradise for that regain of comfort, for that regain of peace. Oftentimes, mankind looks around at the stuff of life around us. Sadly, we're looking within us. And those are all the wrong directions ultimately to be looking. We ought to be looking upward, upward to the God of grace, upward to the God of peace, who only can give everlasting comfort and peace far too often good christians sometimes we get confused bible believing people we follow uh, the guidance of the day that says follow your heart the worst guidance really that ever can be given because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked so young people never follow your heart always follow god's heart god's word God's guidance. This culture constantly misdirects us. It tells us and teaches us for the most part that the stuff stuff of this life will grant peace, will grant comfort. You just turn to any form of media today, whether that's printed, whether that's digital, and it assures us, doesn't it, from from buying toothpaste to To life insurance, that if you just purchase our product, you will find comfort, that comfort that you're seeking for. But we ask ourselves the honest questions, and we ought to be does the stuff of life really grant comfort? Does it really grant that regain of the paradise lost? Do these things ultimately grant real comfort and lasting peace? Well, we know the answer to that. Zechariah already wrote of that in chapter 10 and verse 2 that he said, the idols of this life, they are vain. That is, they are empty. They are meaningless. They are, they are vacant of, of, of comfort and peace. They are not able to grant us that to to fill that vacancy and that void and that hollow uh, that we seek to fill in our hearts. It's not wrong, of course, to own things. But when we make them our God, when we put our trust in them, God forbid that we would worship them and see them as our God. Well, it can't grant any comfort and can't grant any peace. But thanks be to God, that's not the whole of the story, is it? Thanks be to God, there is a way that sinners like you and I, men and women, boys and girls, that we can know comfort, that we can experience a measure of the sweetness that God gave in, to our original parents in paradise, even a sweetness that, that surpasses that. We confess, don't we, in the Heidelberg Catechism, those well-known and often quoted words that our only comfort in life and in death is that we are not our own, but belong unto another, even God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. It's having a relationship with Him and having a measure of knowledge, of assurance, of that relationship with Him—that's where we may find uh, this comfort. And thankfully, also in this Advent season in which we're living and uh, we're walking right now, we may still hear about this Christian comfort and peace. We may hear about that in in the sermons of the season. We read about it, don't we? In the cards that we send to each other, in the greetings, in the songs. We we heard a, a wonderful, edifying evening. On Friday night, the the wonderful comforting truth of the Word of God that points us to where this comfort comes from, and that is the Prince of Peace who grants a peace and a comfort that passes all understanding. Well, this morning hour, we want to focus on a text, a familiar text uh, that guides us and reminds us again of what God does for a broken people, for a sinful people, in the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to read that again at this time. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins." Our theme, as we consider these words, is very simply, comfort and peace on earth from heaven above. Comfort and peace on earth from heaven above. Dear congregation, the Bible is filled with contrasts. The Bible has no contradictions within it but it is filled with contrasts. You read about those all the time, don't you? You read about heaven and hell. You read about day and night, darkness and light, sin and grace, and on and on the contrasts are are laid out in Scripture, often side by side. Even in everyday experiences... We understand something often with a greater measure of clarity when it is contrasted against something else. When you go to buy a piece of jewelry, for example, in a jeweler's shop, or a, a ring with a with a beautiful diamond on it. Well, uh, most often the the jeweler won't show you the, the the ring on on front of the glass showcase, but will put a piece of dark brown or black velour down, and we'll, we'll show it on front of that because the contrast and the beauty of uh, that, that particular item, it shows better, doesn't it? And you can see it more clearly in the, the beauty of it against that black and that dark background. Well, In a certain sense, that's also the way it is with this text and where we find it contextually in uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. In the first part of the book of Isaiah, it is written in in dark tones, if you will, dark and and very sobering tones. Uh, Chapter 1 of Isaiah's prophecy is all about uh, the future judgment of Judah. Chapter 2 is all about the day of the Lord when he will shake the earth. Chapters 13 through 18, there's prophecies against Babylon and Syria and Philistia and Moab and Damascus and Ethiopia and Egypt. And then in the in the following uh, chapters, actually the, the first 39 or so chapters of the the book of Isaiah, there's woes against many nations, God's judgments spoken through the prophet against the many nations. And, and amid this darkness, amid this sobering picture, there's, there's like bright stars that, that twinkle in between. But then you turn the page to chapter 40. And you begin reading these words, Comfort ye, comfort ye, My people, saith your God. It's like the, eastern, the sun in the, in the eastern sky on a beautiful crisp morning. And it begins to dawn and begins to blaze and begins to shine with glory and with power. God is speaking words of comfort to His people. It's often quoted this time of the year. Uh, We hear it, don't we, in that well-known oratorio, Uh, George Frederick Handel wrote that that moving piece and uh, maybe some of you uh, listen to it regularly as we do every season. Uh, Last week we listened to a very stirring uh, presentation of it back home in Wisconsin. And it just moves you. The the very first opening after the strings, uh, the, the solo is, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. And you hear it repetitively, again and again. We need it, cried unto us, shouted in our ears. God is speaking. God is speaking words of comfort to His people. But as we think of these words, these well-known words, we we have to ask ourselves a few preliminary questions. First of all, what is the, the context? What's the historical context of these words at that time? And then secondly, to whom particularly, initially are these words addressed? Those are important questions as you think of these often repeated in, in well-known words. So first of all, let's, let's seek to answer that question. What's the historical setting of these words? Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Now, Sometimes when we read the Old Testament prophets, it can be, at first reading, just a little confusing, a little challenging. And why is that, particularly in the prophets? It can be just a little challenging because there are times in the Old Testament prophets when the prophets actually were speaking about the current events of their day. They were addressing things that were happening at that time in world history, at that time when God had set them on the earth. And then there are other times within the Old Testament prophets where they are prophesying about near future events, and then sometimes about distant future events. You have to look very carefully at the markers and the the context in in which they're written. And then once in a while, and the prophets as well, to, to add to the level of challenge as we read our Scriptures, is that they would alternate back and forth between current events, future events, current events, future events. And so it's incumbent as we particularly read the Old Testament prophecies to ask ourselves and to seek to unpack what is the particular prophet who's inspired to write the Word of God, those particular words, in this chapter or another, what is he speaking about? What's the historical context in which they are writing? Well, here in Isaiah chapter 40 and just a little proceeding in the end of chapter 39, we find Isaiah actually prophesying about a particular future event. And that particular future event that he is prophesying about is the future Babylonian captivity in which the nation of Judah would be taken into a A time of captivity that would last some 70 years in their history. And we know that because of what we read in the previous chapter in chapter 39 beginning at verse 6 where God says through Isaiah behold the days come or literally the days shall come that is the future that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord, and thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so Isaiah is prophesying about the time and the period of the Babylonian captivity. Now, young people, you know a little bit, I trust, of the history of the people of Israel, how that at one time they were one large nation under God and under the leadership in Old Testament time. But then there was a time when the nation split into two, Church splits have been happening uh, from the earliest Old Testament days, sadly, but but truly. And there was the nation to the north, that was the ten tribes, who were under and found their allegiance with King Jeroboam. And then there was the nations to the south uh, that are referred to as Judah, after the largest tribe… There was Judah and Benjamin, and they followed the allegiance of King Rehoboam. And so the history goes, of course, that it was first uh, the nation to the north, sometimes referred to as Israel, sometimes referred to as Ephraim, after their largest tribe, they were taken by the Assyrians into captivity. The nation to the south, Judah, Uh, they uh, saw what was happening, and 130 or so years later, uh, they went the same route. But they were not taken by the Assyrians, they were taken captivity by the Babylonians. And it's this Babylonian captivity of Judah that Isaiah is prophesying about here. And what makes this a little more challenging as we read this thousands of years later, that as as Isaiah is prophesying these very words and writing about them, recording them in Isaiah chapter 40 here, it is still about 120 years until that event would actually take place in history. And then another 70 years, of course, add to that, that they were actually in the Babylonian captivity. And so it would be 190 years before the fulfillment of those familiar words are fulfilled. Her warfare, her captivity is accomplished, is concluded. 190 years yet before she would be liberated from the Babylonian captivity. And so that's the historical setting in which we find the words of this prophecy. But then we ask ourselves that secondary question, well, to whom are these words initially addressed? Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. In the original language, and you find it very clear here, of course, in the English as well, that this is an exhortation. This is in the form of a command. God is saying something. He is, he is demanding, He is requiring, He is exhorting someone to do something, to say something. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Now, the word ye there is in the plural form. And so, All of you comfort My people. Who are the all of you who are to comfort the people of God? Well, it's understood that that was Isaiah and his contemporary prophets, that is, the prophets who would be... uh, would be at his time or following him in between that time before the Babylonian captivity. So, so prophets like Daniel and Michael, Micah and and Joel and Obadiah and Ezekiel and, and likely Nahum as well. They are being called through God's servant Isaiah to comfort the people of God before even the Babylonian captivity would take place and then while it was uh, while it was happening so they could remember these words of comfort that God would liberate them and would bring them hope in the end God knows what every one of his children are going to go through what they're going through right now He knows what they will go through in the future. And so, before an event even takes place, He says, you, my servants, you comfort my people. And God often does that, I think, and you dear Christians know this as well, dear believers among us that God does that so we are armed with the promises of the Word of God so that when the, the difficulties, the pain sets in, the sorrow sets in in our lives, that we don't lose hope, that we have the, the Word of God to turn to. That He speaks to us. Maybe spoken many, many years before and we, and we turn again afresh to it in the Word of God and we say, yes, this is the Lord who has spoken these words of comfort. Because God knew what the people of God would, would have been going through. They would have been going through a tremendous sorrow in, in Babylon. In fact, we, we read about that in Psalm 137. The depth of their sorrow. A, a well-known... A psalm, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, for there those that carried us away captive, they asked for us a song, and those that plundered us required of us mirth. And then mockingly they said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. The Babylonian captors were mocking the people of God. Their hearts were broken. They were a long ways away from their beloved hometown. They were filled with sorrow. And so God says, speak to My people who will be going through that time of sorrow that comfort may be had through Me and iniquity hardened through me and through my Son. They required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And then they responded, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange and a foreign land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember Let my right hand, or let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. And so God is saying through Isaiah to His prophets, my broken people, my sinful people, who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God far too often, but whom I have loved with an everlasting love, they need to hear words of, of comfort spoken from their God to them. They need to hear words of comfort and peace. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God, speak comfortably to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is accomplished. And note the repetition, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. It's like God says, don't forget this. Don't forget this. I'm going to repeat this to you. You'll be prone to to forget. You'll be prone to disbelieve. And so, they need to hear these words again and again. And then note two, uh, to to cry it to her. To shout it, as it were. Don't don't whisper it to my people. But shout it because she needs to hear the, the articulation of this truth clearly and powerfully. Comfort ye, comfort ye. My people, shout it like a trumpet. Cry to her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. So then, what what truth does God so desire to comfort His blessed Judah, His beloved Judah with? Well, first, that her warfare, that her captivity is over. The captivity of the enemy was as good as. Has over from God's eternal perspective, God will and does liberate his people, and he comforts them with this truth. And now, here is the application, and oftentimes we get to the application before we understand the history. Here's the application as was true historically, so is true for every believing Jew at that time and is true for every believing Christian to the end of the age. And you see, that's why, even though these were words spoken at a historical time, about a historical point, that's why these words of comfort are just as comforting to the church today, thousands of years later, as they were back then to the people of God The spiritual application is as glorious today for the church of Christ. The comfort is timeless. The spiritual fight is over for the believing Christian on one level. And we ask that question then, therefore, don't we? How is that? Well, Dear congregation, you, you know the basics of the gospel, I trust, that aside from God's grace, mankind is at war with God. The great error of so many today believes something along these lines, that there are the people of God, and then that there are the unbelievers… And then there is this wide swath of the gray ones in the middle who are neither really hating God nor really loving God. But Jesus said, if you are either for me or you are against me. Yes, we may struggle with assurance if we are truly for Him. But we are either born again or we are not born again. We are either on the pathway that leads to eternal destruction or we are on the narrow pathway that leads to eternal life. It's a sobering thought, but it's an encouraging truth for those who are on the narrow pathway that leads to eternal life. That there is hope in glory, that there is hope in Christ, that there is comfort and peace ultimately in Him. But That doesn't take away uh, this truth that uh, the carnal, the unsaved, Mind. The unbelieving mind, Paul writes in Romans 8 and verse 7, is at enmity with God. He writes it like this in uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 3, and verse 17 Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often now, and I tell you now, even weeping, that they are enemies the cross of Christ. Paul's heart was broken. It was ripped out of his chest as it were. He's crying in his soul that there are people who who don't love God I remind us once again in this season when we mingle with family and loved ones, especially when we are they come, come to know the Lord that we don't think, well, I'm saved and well, my, my unbelieving parent or friend or, or work associate or family member. Well, they're just an unbeliever. And unbelief is, is a terrible sin. But let's join in the spirit of Paul and say, even with weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And if it wasn't by the grace of God, dear Christian, that would be you and me. It's only sovereign grace. It's only merciful grace that makes the difference. Let our hearts be smitten and broken that there are those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And let's pray ardently and may that that sorrow turn us more to prayer and to exhortation and to Christian example that God would, would change hearts and save souls. There are those who are enemies, but God in His wonderful grace, He conquers hearts, doesn't He? He saves souls. That's the the glory of the gospel. And And He causes sinners to be born again and to have their feet taken from the broad pathway that leads unto eternal destruction and set on that narrow pathway that leads to eternal life. And He grants us a measure of comfort and a measure of peace. Paul writes it like this in Ephesians 2, For He, that is Jesus Christ, is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances for to make in Himself of the twain a new man, so making peace. You see, the fight for the Christian is over in principle. The warfare is accomplished. There's a beautiful correlation between that, that, that word accomplished. And uh, that word that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke on the cross, his sixth word, he spoke with power, with dignity to Telestai. It is finished. It is accomplished. It is done. Salvation is secured for every one of his children. He conquered, he crushed the head of the enemy that is Satan. And he turns hearts to serve him and to love Him, and to fear Him. Victory is won, and that is true comfort, and that is true peace, especially when we come to to see and to experience a measure of that in our hearts. Our warfare is accomplished. Your warfare is accomplished. It's completed, dear Christian, you know, that's a hard lesson to learn, isn't it, on the experiential level, on the experienced level. We may know of it cognitively our minds. We read about it in the Bible. Yes, Jesus saved me for my sins. But how often don't we, don't we go about with our old works righteousness heart to, to add our little two cents worth and say, Lord, let me help you. Let me help you pay the price. Let me, let me assist you. With my obedience, somehow what I do merits something. You know, ultimately, that's an offense to God because it says that Jesus didn't do enough. That the Lord Jesus' all atoning life and death was not sufficient to pay for our sins, and we have to add our little two cents worth to it. God says all the way through His Word in the Gospel and really contained in these words that the warfare for the people of God is accomplished. There is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 and verse 1. But we ask ourselves that correlative question, then if we are at peace with God, then why do I feel this battle going on in my heart? Why do I feel this war going on in my heart? Why did the Apostle Paul write in Romans 7, the good that I would not, the evil that I, that, that I would not, that I, I find myself doing, oh, wretched man that I am, and why the fight going on within? Why does the Bible speak of Christian warfare? Well, it's, it speaks about Christian warfare in a completely different context. In an unsaved state, the natural man is at war with God. But in the saved state, the Christian, in his good days, is at war with sin. Not war with God, war with sin. And therefore, we must put on the whole armor of God. The battle lines are, are drawn differently. God has drawn them as such. He has brought His people uh, to the pathway of peace. And so we don't fight Him anymore. Uh, We we, we fight sin. We fight sin within. We fight sin without. We we fight the good fight of faith. And so in that sense, the, the fight is just beginning and it's going to continue. I spoke once to a young man who who was wonderfully saved by the grace of God, and he didn't understand all the, the, the details of, of the Christian walk, and he came up to me and says, Pastor, he says, I, it's so nice. I, I know now, now know the, the Lord. I now know Jesus. And he says, I feel so unrest in my soul. When, when will this go away? And I looked at him and I said, when you're laying in a pine box… That's when it's finally going to go away. We fight the fight of faith here below. But the victory over sin that Christ has accomplished on the cross and paid the sin debt, that is accomplished. But yes, we we fight in the life of sanctification. We we fight it all the time. And it's good that we fight it. Therefore, we are at war with God But now being made at peace, we are at war with sin. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak comfortably. Speak to the hearts, literally, of Jerusalem. And cry unto her that her warfare, that the fight is accomplished. But he goes on in the text to say that her iniquity is pardoned. Her iniquity is pardoned. The Lord desires that His children hear this statement of truth, this affirmation from the Almighty in clear and uncertain terms that her iniquity is pardoned by the divine judge of heaven. The word iniquity there is a powerful word in the Hebrew language. It speaks about the the vileness of sin, the terrible, terrible nature of of the radical depth and depravity that is within us. That sin that when we when we are given an awareness of it by the Spirit's awakening makes us to shudder deep down to our toes. It's not the word that talks about the the peccadellos, the the little uh, sins in life, but the the, the horrible iniquity that is deep, deep in our hearts. Jeremiah 17, the heart is a, a deep well of sin. No one can know it. No one can plumb the depths of the depth of our sin. And God says, all that iniquity is pardoned. There is peace. There is satisfaction embedded in that truth. This gracious Savior, this Advent Savior, He comes, doesn't He? And He satisfies God's holy wrath and He grants a full pardon. It's legal language. Because the, the heart of the Gospel is a legal pronouncement it's not the only place we read about this in, in Scripture. Jeremiah 33 and verse 8, God says, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against Me, and I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against Me. You see, when we sin, we don't just sin And it's just an activity. Our sin is against something, and more particularly, our sin is against God, against our Creator. It is against, dear Christian, our Redeemer. And that causes us to fear sometimes. And so God says, all your iniquity... Is pardoned. You see, when the Spirit of God grips, comes to to apply that truth to our heart, and we and we and we believe it by faith, we we grasp it by faith. We we don't, as the Catholics say, well, if they know their iniquity is fully pardoned, well, they'll just go and sin because well, they're they're all forgiven. That's not the way grace works. When grace is experienced in the heart. It breaks our heart. And we say, God, how could You? How could You be so kind? How could You be so gracious? It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And we consider how good He is in the Gospel to undeserving sinners. We stand amazed that He would have mercy on such a wretch as, as ourselves. And so God declares to His people also to this very day and will to the end of the age your iniquity, all that vile iniquity is pardoned. I have come down with my legal hammer on the, on the, on the justice desk. And I have pardoned you. I have declared you not guilty. And God does that of course because of His Son, Jesus Christ, who has paid the full ransom, the full purchase price for the sins of all His people. You know, in the court systems of of this land, if someone commits a a crime, uh, they can be pardoned and sometimes are pardoned. But in some cases, the pardon can be revoked, it can be canceled if that person commits the same crime. But if there is a presidential pardon, that pardon can never be revoked in the legal system of our land. And why? Because of the authority of the president who granted it. I want you to to make the application. God is the president of the entire universe. And when He says to His people, Your iniquity is pardoned. That's a judicial pronouncement that can never be revoked. Paul says as much in Romans 11 and verse 29, for the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. That is, without change. Children, you know, God is almighty. He is the almighty God of heaven and of earth. And we often say, don't we, God can do anything. He can do anything. But you know, there's some things God actually can't do. Did you know that? God can't die. God can't lie. And God can't change. If, hypothetically speaking, he could do any of those things, he wouldn't be God anymore. Not the God of the scripture, not the God of heaven and earth. And so, when God says something and He declares something, He doesn't change His mind. He's not this arbitrary sovereign who says, Well, pardon today, forgiven today, and Well, no, no, no now I'm, I'm going to revoke that decision. No, He declares for His people a, a divine pardon based on the blood of His dear Son. All the iniquity which offends His holy character is blotted out for the sake of Jesus Christ the Advent Savior. And that, that in and of itself ought to fill the hearts of the people of God with comfort, with joy, and with peace in this Advent season. Yes, when we think about His birth, but when we think about His life, when we think about His death, our iniquity is pardoned. But then Isaiah goes on Uh, to tell the prophets and Himself and God speaking through all of them to His people then and still today. For she, that is Judah, hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. There's a beautiful expression there in those words, in this phrase. For she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The hand of the Lord is in the Bible is symbolic. God, of course, is a spirit, John chapter 4. We worship Him in spirit and in truth. God doesn't have a physical being, but yet He comes down and speaks in human language to us so that we would be able to identify with Him as the great God in heaven, and He speaks to us in anatomical language uh, that He has feet and the hands, and that He has eyes that go to and fro throughout the earth. And here it speaks about the hand of the Lord, for she hath received of the Lord's hand, hand double for all her sins. The picture of God's hand in the Bible is oftentimes a picture of blessing and power. Psalm 48 and verse 10 According to Thy name, O God, so is Thy praise unto the ends of the earth, and Thy right hand is full of righteousness. In Luke 1 and verse 66, the Lord told Zechariah that the hand of the Lord would be with His son, John the Baptist. Acts 11 and verse 21, the church at Antioch, and the hand of the Lord... Was with them. And so you see, when God says here to his people, then and now, for they have received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins, God is saying, I raise up my right hand of power and of blessing and of help and assistance and guidance to his people. You receive of My hand. You don't, deliver, you don't receive uh, the, the punishment from My hand, but you receive from My hand double for all your sins. God is an abundantly giving God, a gracious God. Paul writes that, doesn't he, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, that He does exceeding and abundantly above and beyond what we ask or we think. Or those well-known words in Isaiah. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will what? Children, you know the rest of that text. For he will abundantly pardon. Paul writes to Titus in chapter 3 not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy which He has saved us, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He has shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all sins. Some suggest here that possibly Isaiah may have had in mind as he's writing these words, we have no way of knowing, uh, that the double blessing uh, that God blesses His people with, that is justification, uh, being made right with God, being declared right before God in sanctification, uh, granting unto us a measure of His holiness to walk in uh, the, the path of obedience. Whether that is or or isn't, we have no way of knowing, of course, what was in Isaiah's mind as he wrote these things, but it is a glorious truth that God grants both justification and His grace and sanctification to His people. But either way, the Lord would have His people know also here that this is a truth that needs to be cried to His Jerusalem, to His church, that the fight is over. She is pardoned that we may receive double from the hand of the Lord for all of our sins. Now God spoke this to the entirety of Judah, all of the people of God, among whom there were the saved and among whom there were the unsaved. And He cried it aloud in all of their ears, but only some of them received the comfort of it. And why is that? Hebrews 4 tells us that that which is received in faith, then it will only, the only then will it profit us. And so I ask us this morning, as we draw near to the close of this service, do you dear friends, your children, your teenagers, do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you by the grace of God rested in Him, trusted in Him, put your hope in Him? You may say, well, well I can't do that. Well, of course you can't. The Bible tells us that without Him we can do nothing. But when by the grace of God we, we may have put our trust in Him, And may rest in him even even in small measures of faith is because he begins the good work in our hearts and lives and will accomplish it, will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. You see, Satan, Satan will not want you to trust in Christ. He doesn't want you to trust in Christ. He hates faith. He hates Christ. He hates the church. He hates everything that's good and right. And so Satan cannot put faith in your heart. Nor can you. Nor can you. Be reminded that the Bible tells us that we are totally depraved. And we are completely unable to do anything of ourselves, spiritually speaking, right and so when by the grace of God we may rest in him and trust in him and hope in him and confess our sins before him. Do you think that you began that in your heart? Oh well, dear friends, you're you're thinking way too highly of yourself. It's God who does these things. It's he who who works with his power of his grace and his spirit in our hearts. Yes, it's our fault when when we have not rested in Him, but when we have, He gets all the glory and we simply receive the benefits. Praise be to Him. And so the question that comes to you, and we need to contemplate, what do you think of Jesus Christ? What do you think of this Advent Savior? Is He just a historical person in history who's laid like a baby in the manger? And we sing the songs of the season and maybe some of these things warm our hearts. Or is He this precious Christ child who came to this earth and who lived and who died and who rose and who now sits at the Father's right hand and He did this for all His people. And you say, and I can't believe I can't believe He actually did this for me as well. That's the beauty of grace. That's the beauty of the Gospel. It's the beauty of of personal experience. Power of the blood in our souls. And God is willing to go on to speak to us and to comfort us throughout history and say to His people also, To this very day, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem and cry to her. Speak to her heart that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Do you know this comfort is only comfort in life and in death? I say to you in love, if you don't know this comfort, I pray, dear friend, that you may feel holy, that is totally, uncomfortable until you know this comfort. And you would never just sit idly by and say, well, you know, some people have it and some people don't. Some people are born again and, and I guess I'm not. Never, never treat God that way. Never treat grace that way. Never treat the Bible that way. Never treat His promises that way. Never treat His Son that way. He's too valuable. He's too honorable. And you must stand one day before the judgment seat of Christ. Don't live that way and certainly, certainly don't die that way. Think of those sobering words in Scripture. Sometimes it's it's good as, as Christians to do this as well, to remind ourselves what we've been saved from. The, the unbeliever will one day Revelation six stand before Christ, that welcoming, glorious Christ, who stands in the comfort of the gospel and invites sinners to himself even today, will come one day to judge the living and the dead. And the book of Revelation tells us, chapter 1, that his eyes will be as a flame of fire. Revelation tells us, uh, chapter 6 tells us that the unbeliever will look on him and will say, Mountains fall on us and hills cover us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Think of that, options. I'd rather have the mountains crush me than to have to face. King Jesus in His holy wrath. That's what awaits the unbeliever. But the believer will hear those welcome words, Come, come, thou good and faithful servant, even though we've been so unfaithful. Come, come up higher unto the presence of the Lord. Surrender your souls even today to this God of all comfort and this God of all grace. And may you know His comfort and His peace both in this life and in this season and to all eternity as well. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God of grace, of comfort, of power, and of peace, we bow and give thanks for the wonderful truth that Thou hast of Thy infinite mercy and Thy sovereign pleasure granted comfort historically, liberating the people of God so many years ago and spiritually liberating them as well and still spiritually liberating Thy people so many years later and will to the end of the age. O oh Lord, may our, may our hearts be smitten and broken by the goodness of God, even as we consider these comforting words. Dismiss us, we pray, uh, with a favor and blessing. Go with us the rest of this uh, Lord's Day. Uh, Bless the uh, catechism, Sunday school classes, the addresses, the the education uh, to the, the welfare of the young hearts and souls Bring us back again this evening hour to hear what the Spirit of God has to say to the church. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.